When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, George Edelman here, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School and host of this, the No Film School podcast. And our guest today is Todd Field, writer and director of Tar. Tar is the story of Lydia Tar, and it is a magnificent, epic character study. It is both vast in its canvas and implications about society and culture today, or ever, but also extremely personal and close up. To the point where so much of it is just happening in the frame that's Kate Blanchett's face. The movie does so many things with the craft that we could talk about or get into. It is an excellent piece of art. And it was hard, honestly, to do an interview with Todd and focus in on just a few things to talk about in the time we had because there is so much about what he does here from a writing and a directing standpoint that's of interest and I think of value to discuss, not the least of which is interpreting the film itself, which is something that he really shies away from and takes this interview in a different direction than I had intended it to go, honestly. And that's interesting unto itself. So I hope you enjoy that aspect of it. I think he shares some really valuable wisdom and advice, even though he also says he does not want to dispense any advice and advice is cheap. So there's some fun to be had here. This is a really great movie and a great example of what you can do with the medium. Here we go. Todd Field, Tar. I can't tell you how much I love this film and how excited I am to have you here. Been a fan of yours since for a long time. I remember seeing in the bedroom and being so struck by it and the way you told that story and like it just kind of came out of nowhere and it was in- incredible. So it's always fun to see when you've got something new and this movie, there is just so much to talk about. <laughs> well, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, to be here and I'll, I'm, I'll answer any questions as best as I can. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, you know, starting off just with a lot of topics, this movie circulates and goes through and weaves around. Where did the inspiration come from initially? It's to write it, to do it, to to have this whole, where did it all start for you? And how did you accomplish the writing as quickly as you did? Well, I'd been thinking about her for about 10 years. I didn't know if I'd ever be able to put her into a story because everything that I'd been writing was based on underlying material, you know, that had sprung from the imaginations of other writers. So really, you know, my writing life has really been, for the most part, after film school uh, in adapting material. So she was always kind of, you know, in the general neighborhood of, of my work, but, but, but I had no place to sort of build her a home. And then in March of 2020, at the beginning of the lockdown, you know, I sort of had this sort of gigantic opportunity where um, Peter Kajowski at Focus said to me, you know, write something for us and write whatever you like. 
Um, and I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll build her a house and, 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 and now we can, we can see how she lives, you know? Can you tell me a little bit about her living with you for 10 years, so to speak, and knowing that there was a character, was there this specific arc or was there just this idea of the person we meet at the beginning? I didn't know what milieu she'd be in. I knew she'd be in some kind of hierarch or, you know, power structure, some, you know, top of a pyramid, so to speak, in terms of being able to walk around it, you know, hopefully in a, in a, a multidimensional way to examine how that power works and how, uh, how complicit others are in it, you know? Um, but I, I didn't know it would be set in classical music. Hmm. That decision happened, very, you know, very late. But once that decision was made, uh, you know, I had a lot to learn. You know, I had to do uh, some homework only so much as that, not that it would matter to anyone else, to a viewer, there's not going to be a test or anything, but that she presented in a way where you understood that she absolutely knew her stuff, you know, and that required probably about three and a half, four weeks of real tender tutelage by uh, John Malcheri, who's a, a great educator, author, conductor himself. And he had been Leonard Bernstein's assistant for 15 years. So once, oh, wow. once that had happened, once, once I'd been in dialogue with John for weeks and then I actually started writing, it went very quickly. I finished with the script in about 12 weeks. And so this idea of her atop the power structure and the idea of the power pyramid and those complicit relationships you're talking about, those functions of story were always part of what you wanted to do with the character. And Indeed. it always was going to be female? Yes, always. Because I was immediately struck, particularly by the Juilliard rehearsal scene, the conversation about the white cisgendered men and the context that's created there. So was that sort of thing always going to be addressed like we're going to tell this kind of story about a female figure in power and we're going to address that kind of like was that always part of the dna no i mean i hadn't again i it, this was a she's a real person to me you know i mean i i i know as much about her as i know about anybody on earth you know she was a completely fully realized human being to me so in terms of but but she was again she was living in like a pup tent in my backyard you know i didn't <laughs> <laughs> I, I hadn't followed her to work. I hadn't, I hadn't done any of these things. I didn't know what the exact scenes would be. I um, see. But that is the first scene that I wrote. And I rewrote it for about four months every day at the end of my, of my writing day on, on the rest of the script. And, and really it's the kind of where everything gets planted in a strange way, right? Well, I mean, there's a, yeah, I mean, not to, I don't want to get in the way of anyone else's interpretation, but I mean, the impetus to write that scene was very simple, which is what would your 50 year old self tell your 25 year old self, you know, and, and what is the agenda behind the supposed know-how and wisdom that you're dispensing to your 25 year old self? And that seemed important to me, you know, I mean, here she is, she's playing dead cis white man's canonical work. But when she was 25 years old, she was doing exactly what the student was. She was mm. wanting to break glass ceiling. She was doing experimental atonal music. She was down in the Eastern Amazon recording, you know, Icaros and, and trying to get her doctorate and in, in figuring out that music is just noise and that you can put all kinds of labels on it. But I mean, she was trying to destroy her own ego, her own formal education. And, but here she is 25 years later and, and she's 180 degrees from that. And this kid is kind of who she was, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when she first goes after him, she's doing it in a dismissive manner having to do with this piece of music. Well, let's look at the piece of music. Who wrote the piece of music? 
what kind of music is that? Well, we know from the scene that, that follows this when she's at the Carlisle Hotel, when she asks her assistant, Francesca Lentini, played by Noemi Merlon, doesn't this sound like warmed over Charles Ives to you? Well, Charles Ives is the sort of, uh, you know, parent of, of atonal music, certainly in terms of America. So clearly that's an aim for her. Yet she dismisses mm-hmm. it in the previous scene with this student, and she's dismissing it about somebody that's written this music who is also female, who is much younger than her, and as she describes this person, much more attractive, potentially, um, in a particular right. manner, um, and hugely popular in the classical music scene and, and of the moment, or as she would say, au courant, right? So I think she's making arguments that, on the one hand, many people would agree it's ridiculous to separate the art from the artist in terms of the Bach of it all. But on the other hand, she's doing it for very personal reasons that may not be so high-minded, you know? When you mentioned earlier, I'm curious with the many times you went back to the scene and all the things you packed into there about her and about her own talking to herself aspect of this, were there points in time where this was not about music before she was about music? Because you said that happened late in the game. Yeah, I mean, I, she was always going to be sitting atop a power structure, whether that was a major, you know, energy company or a media corporation or, you know, take your pick. You know, the main thing is, is really about the conduits of power and, and trying to have a character who, I mean, no one gets to that position who um, is Gandhi, you know. Right. <laughs> right. When you think of that scene in other milieus, like you said. Were there versions of it where there's the older one, there's the talking to the younger version of yourself, so to speak, and it's in some other field, like maybe it was in media. Did those kinds of things ever cross your mind? Or was once you sunk into music, it feels like music is such a part of the story. Well, it's a classroom scene, right? So that's an opportunity. But yeah, I mean, the idea of mirroring a character, you know, the idea of having some kind of pluralism and having a character. I mean, she says... The line she says at the very beginning with Adam is time. Time is the thing. Time is the essential piece of interpretation. Well, that is, that is what her life is about, you know, is about time and, and being on the same side as the spirit who created it with the music. Well, she couldn't be further than, from that. If she went down to obliter- obliterate her own ego, which is what she's telling the student at the end, end of the scene, that she has to obliterate your own identity, she couldn't be further from that. I mean, she's, mm. she's so far away from that. Her thing is all about identity. You know, she's acquisitive. She's obsessed with material objects and wealth and a lot of other things. She's hardly a high priestess of purity. <laughs> but this is what's so brilliant, if I may, about the movie. At the end, hasn't it all been obliterated? <laughs> Isn't that part of what we're experiencing? Is the obliteration and then the purity at the end of... Uh, a video game concert? <laughs> that, I, I wouldn't argue with that interpretation or, or offer any other. I always feel it's best that the music, you know, in the movie, uh, both things could speak for themselves. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
There's a lot of ways to interpret this. I've seen a lot of things written. I don't know if you have or if you put yourself through that, but just about the way it, it this relates to cancel culture or the dynamics of people abusing power and taking advantage and things like that. When you're writing, it sounds like you're careful and directing the film to not say, I'm going to impose my perspective here. How do you do that <laughs> with something so complicated? Like, how do you say a version of, I'm just presenting a story for you to interpret and experience? Well, like I said, I mean, I've been thinking about her for a long time, you know, and I wanted to know her as well as I knew anyone in my household or, or, or any friend that I've had for many years, you know, and if you, if you followed any of us around, you know, sometimes we're noble, sometimes we're selfish, sometimes we're kind, sometimes we're cruel, sometimes we do things we wouldn't want anyone to know about. And if you just simply have an objective sort of a point of view examining any of those things for a character, I think you have a better chance of making them feel like a living, breathing human being. That's the kind of storytelling that I've always been drawn to. And that's a fairly lofty goal, but that was sort of the intent here. So when you give us moments with her that are humanizing or tender after you've given us moments of her where she's monstrous or however you wanted to, someone to describe it, is part of that that you're saying is coming from the, I've followed her all these places and I'm just trying to observe her. Like I'm not trying to decide, so to speak, as an artist, what she's going to do or what we're going to see, but I'm trying to present. Yeah. I mean, human beings, you know, sometimes they're, they operate with their better angels and sometimes they're monsters, you know? I mean, I'm dubious of equational narrative, uh, especially when it comes to, to characters um, and, and, and thematically um, just for me, the film is really about the question that you're asking, which is, we have a lot of things that come at us very quickly in life. And it's, as a practical matter, whether it's having a first impression from someone that you're introduced to or seeing something on the news or um, seeing something on social media, we don't have the time to actually, in any thorough or considered way, make a judgment. We make them quickly because they're in, we need to get them, we need to clear the deck so we can go on and live our lives. You know, that, as much as anything, that, that's, that's what this film is about for me. There's certainly instances in the movie where false narratives are crafted and presented that we know are obviously false, as well as things that are built slowly and we know are completely fair and true. <laughs> right. And so existence of all those things makes us realize how powerful that that quick jerk court of public opinion is. And that seems very intentional. But when you're trying to tell a story, like if we're talking about like creating a narrative that allows us to see a character and all of the facets you describe, how do you make sure you stay balanced? Like, how did you find the way to stay balanced to give us all the different places she was? And like, it, it, we, we see all these crazy things are happening but we're always with her. We're always seeing it from her perspective. That's like a directing choice. That's a writing choice. Can you talk a little bit about trying to keep that balance? Does that make sense at all? What I just asked? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, the rules for this film were very simple, which is with the exception of the very last shot of the film and one little sort of fan number where we see Francesca Lentini crossing from Zittimer's pharmacy over into the Carlisle hotel. When we see the back of Krista Taylor's head on the sidewalk, Mm. Other than that, Lydia Tarr is in every other scene and she drives every other scene. And mostly, other than the very first shot 
uh, where you know someone is watching her. Somebody is, mm-hmm. there's a conspiracy. It can be a very normal, petty, gossipy conspiracy, but someone in, in the same manner as if a, a young foot soldier in an Elizabethan play stepped on stage and was staring at the king the night before a battle asleep under a tree and maybe their fingers were just sort of brushing the top of the handle of their dagger and you're wondering is that just a nervous mm-hmm. tick or are they going to put their the, that dagger through the belly of the king you know so there's that point of view but most of the point of view on Lydia is is objective the only places where that is not the case is either through a device or through her assistant Francesca Lentini where we where we're with her and we see how she reacts and and we have a some kind of insight potentially through through that person's experience and then when she leaves you know obviously through her partner the concertmaster of this orchestra uh, Sharon Goodnow played by by Nina Haas who you know does more with with her eyes than most people could do with a you know the entire text <laughs> of Hamlet so um but those are, I mean, those are, they're very simple rules and they're rules because again, we are allowed access to what these characters see of her observing her. We are allowed access to her own experience in real time. We know what she knows in the moment, but we don't know what she knows before this three weeks of span that the story takes place in, right? So we're not allowed to have access to those things because those to have access to those things would be a very different kind of film you know it would be a, a procedural film or be a film about causes and all of these things that this film really isn't about this film is about this character it's about having an opportunity to meet this character in different facets of their life during this period of time a very public one a sort of professional one and a quite private one and that's how the point of views exist yeah. you know within the, the- You've said a lot there to unpack. There's a lot of power in the way you use a camera to create a point of view and what's objective and subjective. And, and I don't think we even have time for me to ask all the questions I have about that. But one thing you're, hint- you're, you're talking about here is that we are aware of how big some of these events are, but we're always with her as they're happening kind of out of camera. And you talked about a stage metaphor, like a, a dagger and a king on a stage. There's something like that here because there's so much happening off off stage <laughs> always like around wherever the frame is we can feel like the history and part of what's compelling about the story is that you keep us with what's in front of us without explaining everything else that's ever happened is it hard to be disciplined with yourself as a creative to say i'm not going to spoon feed the backstory i'm going to let them pick it up as it exists, it's existed with me and her for 10 years, like you said. How do you get that discipline? Because for a lot of people, it's very hard to believe that an audience, a reader or anyone, right, will get all that stuff. Like the scene when she's back home, I guess, with what seems like her brother. But I don't really know because I don't know her, but you clearly knew when you wrote it, right? Yes. Um, The short answer is yes. I just know my own allergies, you know, like if I'm watching a film and the first two acts are fairly non-expository and then somebody does a data dump in the third act it always bothers me um and yet that happens a lot you know i think but the films that that sort of you know turn me on as a young person and made me want to to make films don't do that you know um and there's plenty of wonderful examples of of of, of films that that function in that way a- again you know if you were to follow any of us around for any length of time you wouldn't get exposition you would have Mm. to try to piece together 
a, a portrait of an individual based on the amount of time that you've been allowed to spend with them. And, and those are, that's just simply the way, you know, uh, that we experience the world and the, and the kind of films that, are, that I'm, that I'm interested in. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a great way to experience a movie too. And yet it's something that seems to be not, not super common, but there is this sort of notorious like first page of the script that kind of went viral where you talk about how anybody crazy enough or mad enough, I think to green light this movie, there's going to be tempo shifts and things like that is part of that, like a disclaimer to like, I'm going to take my time and let the story unfold naturally. And you're either with it or you're not. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So when you approach the expansion and compression of time in an edit after you've written it and shot it, are there things where you looked at this and you were like, you know, I need to breathe more here or I need to like, how, how did it evolve for you? A story where, you know, it's so personal, you're up close with her the whole time and you have these rules, but then you see what you've shot and these performances and stuff. Did you start to realize and change things? Oh, well, certainly, you know, I mean, um, you know, the secret dream, I think of many filmmakers is that you'd never have to go through production. You would just go straight to the edit. You know, um, <laughs> I mean, all the cliches are true, which is the script is finished, you know, when you finish editing. So of course, yeah, many things change. And I was very fortunate in, you know, to have a collaboration with somebody such as Monica Willie. and Monica and I had seven day weeks for months. We never took a day off, you know, wow. um, we were in the middle of a bubble because uh, there had been a big COVID outbreak at the beginning of last year, again, in the UK and also in Austria where we were supposed to be cutting. Um, so we were out in the middle of Scotland, you know, with no car, no transportation. And that's all we could do was edit. And things always change, hopefully for the better, you know, but in terms of the tempo of the thing, the shape of the thing, absolutely, as it always does. And in a film, there's a certain point, you know, with any film where you can push it and push it this way and that way, and it'll be very friendly and, and plastic, you know, and then there'll be a certain point where the film just says, no, <laughs> this is what I am, you know, hmm. and it's a really important, that's a really important moment to, to realize, okay, th- th- that's as far as we can push it. You know? Are there any examples from it that you can give us where you realized you were, you were, pushing up against a hard wall with the film? Like it told you to stop or go the other direction? Um, not, not in the specific, but I mean, there's a certain point where when you're working with someone where Mona and I would watch the film down, you know, a lot of the work we did was sound work. We shot a lot of sound by ourselves up in Scotland. Sound is, is equally, if not uh, as important as, as, as the photography in this film. But you know, we would watch the film down and, and decide whether or not we had reached the limit, you know, mm-hmm. and that really is toward the end. That's really getting down to like the last three or four weeks and asking yourself, is, have we really pushed it or have we missed something? You know, it, at that point, you're not a very good judge of, of what you've been doing because you're, you're so in it. Yeah. How, how do you stay objective about what's been done did you do some tests or did you trust one another i mean you said you were in a bubble too did you do tests with friends or trusted advisors or things to say like is this coming through is this not is this working no um what we did do is we would we would burn up an awful lot of editing editing time by taking days off between viewings so that we try to Mm. give ourselves some perspective and then at the end we would look at each other and basically ask a simple question which is how did you feel about her today and and that and the answers changed a lot 
and then we would go back to work again, you know, to hopefully try to, to not be pointing, you know, and not getting caught pointing at all. That's amazing because it, it goes back to something you were saying earlier on in this interview about showing us different sides of her and being honest about following her where she goes. So your barometer throughout was, what do we think of, how do we feel about her today? Like it's a new thing and you react to it honestly and then decide sort of what you need to change or what you need to show more of or less of. Is that kind of where you go with that? Yeah. It's about shades, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to primary colors. So like if it's a portrait, you step back and you say, it's too dark here or something like that to try and Yeah, you're looking for balance, you know, where's the balance and what feels right in terms of balance to where there's still, you still have an open door for a viewer to come in and, and do whatever they want to do. I also really like the idea. And when I offered interpretations earlier, you sort of said like, that's great. You can have that. I don't know if I disagree or whatever, but like that you want people to come into this, experience it and be themselves within it with whatever they take from it. You, there is no agenda here in terms of this is what I hope people take away from, or I hope they don't take away from it. Yeah. I just want people to be, I, I mean, I don't think I'm unique. I mean, I think every filmmaker, that's why we make films. I, you want the greatest possible engagement, you know, and you, personally, the more that engagement veers from what you might feel or think personally about something, the more exciting it is. You know, I, I think that debate and rhetoric and disagreement and disharmony ultimately resolves into some harmony of hopefully finding a chord with, with one another that we may have not heard before, you know? So anything where there, where there's differing opinions is super healthy and, and, and that those are pretty high Falutin, you know, goals or fanciful goals, but you know, that's always the dream when you make something. Yeah. I mean, there's, you say that, but at the same time, the movie touches on such big, important matters of our time that I think we don't realize early on in the movie, but certainly come up that it does seem valuable to create a place for conversation, but that seems like it, it is an important part of what this movie does. I would think like, I don't think people could watch it and leave and not talk about what they just saw. It doesn't seem possible. Well, I, I hope that's true. <laughs> when you look at it now, are there things where you feel sort of like, I, you know, you said you lived with her for so long. Are there things where you wish you could do it again or differently or you're sad or, or are you at peace kind of with the, I did this and it's done or, you know, how, how does your relationship to the finished piece now? Well, I haven't watched it in an awful long time. Um, I haven't seen it down since August, I guess. And I, I, I won't ever watch it again. So, um, but I felt good when we finished. Does the idea of people out there, because this is a thing, Googling if she's real, tickle you or surprise you? Or does it feel like exactly what you kind of had hoped in a weird way? Well, I would never have hoped for that. I mean, that would be, <laughs> that would be absolutely ridiculous to have, have hoped for that kind of reaction. I mean, but like I said, I mean, she was very real to me, you know, so I'm not unhappy that people have thought that, you know. Um, it's, it's a strange thing you managed to do, though, because the world building is so complete. And we don't usually say that about a character study in the current day but that it does feel meshed with our reality to the degree that a lot of people were like, wait, is this a real person? 
Yeah. Well, like I said, I'm, I, I mean, that's surprising, but, but, but not unpleasant to hear. Would you ever, uh, if you were to talk about sort of like things that you think young filmmakers, cause we're kind of wrapping up should consider doing or ways to get started or, or start to get behind the camera. What are the kinds of things you think today are valuable or unique or, or worthwhile? Well, I think advice is cheap. You know, I would be dubious of having a new one dispense advice to, to a young filmmaker other than, you know, fairly, you know, obvious things. I think being a filmmaker now is probably the most exciting thing you could possibly do. And the tools are such, so ubiquitous and so available now that anyone that really wants to make a film can. There's so much history and, and, and libraries of, of really important films that are available to all of us that, that never were before, certainly not when I was starting out. I had to go to great lengths to get my hands on certain films. I'd have people buy them in other countries and you know, I'd bribe a guy in a machine room to, to you know, convert PAL you know, artificial eye tapes to, to NTSC so I could watch them. You know? I mean, there's such a, there's such a, a, a just an a embarrassment of riches you know, that way. Um, and I, you know, it's just like most of my fiction writing friends will always say the best way to learn to, to write is to read. And I think the best way to learn to, to make films uh, other than very practical things in experimenting is, is to be able to go and watch films and, and ask yourself, why is this turning me on? And, and why is this working? And why does it work differently than something else? Uh, I, yeah, I like that advice, even though you're, we're not giving advice. Yeah, we're, so not, speak, I'm, yeah we're not giving advice. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm stating, I'm, I'm Captain Obvious here. Yeah, okay. We're not giving advice. Uh, just one last thing though, because you, you just touched on something else. When you were, you said at the beginning to start to write without adapting, did you do a lot of reading of things that turned you on that you liked the way they were written? Did you read a lot of scripts? Did you, like, what did you, to get into the writing of this piece, which is different than the writing you've done before, like you said, what kind of got you through, like, what did you turn for your, well, I didn't. I didn't approach it any differently than when I adapt material, other, other than the fact that I, I, I got to, I, I got to figure out w- what I wanted to to do in, in a manner that I wouldn't have, uh, you know, that kind of freedom with with IP. I see. But in terms of the actual, like, you know, showing up every day from five to to noon um, and trying to get the the work, and um, it was exactly the same. I mean, the only difference is that. You know, I've always been envious of, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of incredible writers, a lot of people that I've, I've written with and that are, that are great fiction writers or, or essayists, you know, and I've, I've envied them. I've envied them the, the kind of freedom they have as being, you know, the sort of um, originators of material. Um, and, and that was a different feeling, just the, the pleasure of that, you know. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And Thank you for making the film. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you so much to Todd for coming on the podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. Whatever you think about a movie, it is always great when you have the room to interpret it yourself and you get to come in and make decisions about what it meant or what it was about or why. Todd made it pretty clear that he doesn't want to tread into those waters himself, but that he wasn't going to argue with interpretations. There are so many things out on the internet 
written about what this movie means or what angle it takes or what agenda it has. And I think it's fascinating that the artist himself had only one agenda, which was taking us through an honest discovery of this character that he had lived with and thought about for so long. And one of the really interesting things he talked about was that he didn't know exactly even what career this character had. You would think watching it that it was always music, but it's interesting to think that it wasn't. And I tried to kind of get at with him what else it was or could have been, but he didn't really want to go there either too specifically. Um, But either way, it was an honor to have him on and it was fascinating to hear his perspective on the film and crafting it. You can find out more about all kinds of filmmaking, tech, tools, education, and news at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast and leave a comment and let us know what you think. And send us your questions because we publish a weekly podcast every Thursday, and we love to answer your questions on that show. And these interviews usually come out on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. Thanks so much for listening.